This podcast is brought to you by Score Foundation. Hi, my name is George Abraham and welcome to Iway Conversations. My guest today is Shakila Maharaj from Durban, South Africa. Uh Shakila is a social entrepreneur and innovator and international disability trainer and a strategist. Hi Shakila, welcome. Hi George, thank you very much for inviting me and it's a pleasure to be part of this. Uh you've been doing a lot of work in the area of audio description. Now we have a little audio description that happens in India as well. But tell me what is the status of audio description in uh, South Africa and what has been the journey? So it's been a difficult journey. I started with audio description in South Africa more than 12 years ago when I first realized that it was actually an established art form and an access tool. So I trained under Joel Snyder in the USA, came to South Africa and started to create awareness around it. the uh, blindness sectors as well as the film industry were totally unaware of it and i was doing it alongside my main job so it was more uh, an interest at that stage and uh, i then set up a company and uh, alongside my main consultancy and then trained people in it uh, i invited joel to south africa and together we traveled around the country we trailed trained over 100 persons as well as did uh, a high level captains of awareness uh, awareness of captains industry session and at the end of that it almost became a household word uh, audio description uh, but still the progress was pretty slow because broadcasters were not very keen and the film industry did not know much about it and i stayed focused on my core function uh, my Shall I say my core career? Then, around 2016, I had a lucky break with the SABC. That's our South African national broadcaster, and I was given an, a Zulu TV series. So it was 13 episodes, like a soapy, and I, it was also quite uh, an amazing thing at that stage to train people in Zulu to do audio description. So it was first language speakers. and i trained people in durban and in uh, johannesburg and out of that group i identified some individuals to do the work so we did the series and it was screened on open time on television for everyone to experience because south african television till today does not have the have the capacity to um, transmit audio description independently are there uh, a number of blind and visually impaired people who actually uh... want to see films and be entertained well actually when i first started out promoting audio description most blind persons that i associated with didn't even know about it and when we're curious about why would a blind person even want to watch tele- television or watch a movie they largely you know spent their leisure time either reading or listening to the radio audio books or, or the radio and the years over the years this trend has changed as 
I, what I've noticed is as blind persons became more aware of audio description through the, the, the great uh, sensitivity we've been doing in the country, uh, and also through smart technology, and particularly during COVID, when Netflix became so popular and the subscriptions became available in, in South Africa, then audio dis description became widely known. And again, those that are more techie have more exposure to it and are able to source open source description from uh, you know the internet and that. But my intervention has been to actually uh, do audience development with blind persons. So I started an AD movie club, audio description movie club, more than eight years ago. And uh, I've kept it going. And once a month, I show an audio description movie. And the idea was not just to uh, expose persons to the fact that we could watch a film independently and enjoy it and understand it fully, but also to enjoy the big screen. So I got access to a private cinema, 50-seater state-of-the-art cinema owned by the KZN Film Commission. And I've been really fortunate in that all these years, I've been able to continue with my audio description movie club once a month. I have visually impaired members that come with family and friends. It's like a night out and we watch a film together and often there's like an after party. We were talking about uh, the app that has been developed or, or which is in the process of being developed. Uh, and I believe your son Prashant has been involved closely with the developer. Uh, maybe Prashant can tell us a little bit about uh, this app if he's around. Yes, he'd be happy to join. So, uh, Prashant, uh, hi and welcome to Iway Conversations. Uh, I was just speaking to your mom about the audio description and she was telling me about an app that is going to be launched very soon in South Africa. And I believe you have been working closely with the developer on this. So would you like to tell us what this app is about and what will be the features and what are the exciting things that visually impaired people can look forward to? So the Shazasim app initially was created to facilitate entertainment for a visually impaired market. So to contain all the audio description tracks that we would do for film, locally based South African films, and uh, we place them on the app and then uh, a blind person would be able to control their audio described experience when it came to film and television. But now we've gone a step further and we basically uh, defining Shazasin as an accessibility ecosystem where you have, where we try to audio describe as much as we can. We're spreading past uh, the entertainment sector now and we're going to uh, important services like tourism, health and safety, education. Um, we, I think we also have podcasts there as well. So we're spanning out into different uh, visual mediums that, that would benefit from description. We're trying to uh, bring in more content like that into the Shazasin app. So uh, there would be audio descriptions for movies, there would be audio descriptions for historical sites, there would be audio yes. descriptions in museums. Um, yes, it's got a tour a tourism section where we have audio described tours, then it's got illustrated books, so the, the defining factor regarding books is illustrated books. So from educational to uh, entertainment. And yeah, and then the other section is dealing with commerce, We're moving on to shopping platforms and that. So we are 
who we are including uh, an advertising feature. Uh, so that, that that's going to be that's that's going to be placed on the app in an intelligent way as to not to, as to not to be an obstacle to the experience, but uh, it will it will also facilitate the the larger companies that want to support audio description and uh, and want to make their own product ranges, their own businesses accessible to blind people. So the but I, I actually didn't mention the most significant feature of the app itself is the listen function that uh, was developed for it. Um, when you're playing something in the background, like a movie or a TV show, and if we have the audio description track on the Shazison database, then once you click on the listen function, that it's a button in the center, a bottom center of the screen, uh, it will, the app itself will start listening to what's playing on the, t on the TV or on the cinema. And if we have a description track for it, it will synchronize the AD track to that timestamp in the production that's playing in the background and it'll it'll sync it up to the correct time and a blind person doesn't have to uh they, they don't have to ask a sighted person for help when it comes to controlling the audio described experience now it'll auto sync it'll auto sync and it'll start playing from that from from that point and if if the the blind person wants to hear the track uh come in before or after what's playing on screen. They can control that too. If you know of anyone with vision impairment who needs guidance on living life with blindness, please share the IWA National Toll-Free Helpline number 1-800-5320-469. The number is 1-800-5320-469. Two zero four six nine. You know, you also have done a lot of work in the area of tourism. You yourself travel a lot, and uh, I, I've read that you've done a fair bit of work in terms of tra travel and tourism, making it inclusive. I love traveling. I love visiting new places. You know, getting exposed to new cultures and people. And when I go, I mainly travel alone. So, and the reason I do that is because I feel then people are forced to interact with me and then understand how I function. Uh, and it's an opportunity then for me to sensitize them as to how I function. And I've been, like, I have been blessed because I've had good experiences all the way. So I use myself first as a point of awareness raising and education, just to show how people what my needs are. And it's along the whole value chain of travel. So from the time you book a trip and you're dealing with a, a travel agent to actually the airlines, to then the hotel accommodation or tour operators, to the you know to the various destinations you may visit, to, to other people that you just may meet along the way on a street, in a restaurant. So so I feel I'm the first point of reference in their education around inclusive tourism and first-hand experiences is usually the most uh, influencing and thereafter i started to when i you know when i realized that i was acquiring a wealth of information by doing this i started to look more and more at uh, what were the laws around this and realized that the laws themselves needed addressing and started getting uh, more involved then at looking at tourism legislation in this country 
and becoming part of the structures that could influence it. So, for example, then when we created the, the uh, grading scheme, the accessible grading scheme, there are grading schemes already in place to grade establishments uh, in line with different standards. So we added the accessibility standard to it. And then that, but unfortunately, it's not compulsory. It's an, a nice to have for the industry. Whereas the standards that they got to meet to get ratings, like star ratings for non-disabled uh, travelers, that is a requirement. So uh, I really hope uh, in time, and we need to push with this, is that accessibility grading needs to be linked also to star rating, because that's then what will make the difference. Shakila, we met maybe a decade and a half ago in New mm. Delhi, when you had come to Delhi with a windmills training program, uh, it was sensitizing the corporates and uh, probably even people with disability. Uh, so tell me a little bit about your experience of taking windmill around the world. So windmills was an amazing program and still is. And even though at that time it was pioneering, since then, there are numerous awareness raising and attitudinal change programs. But I still maintain, because that program was designed in a very unique way, it was designed around a set of games, 11 modules, which were 11 games. You played a game and you unwittingly uh, disclosed what your real feelings were and your attitude. And then it was tackled in the game. And then, you know, the attitudinal change was, was worked on. So, what that did for me, it 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 actually uh, enhanced my own skills and my own attitude and how to deal with myself and in turn then how to deal with people. And uh, I actually ended up with the following because as I traveled the world and presented this training, I found that those individuals themselves became like disciples of windmills. And today there's quite a, a, a number around the world doing it. And it's also been a source from which other types of interventions have emerged. In fact, the single, sing, single modules have become like full training courses for some people because they've, they've, they've extended its application. So yeah, the, the windmills has been quite a, a groundbreaking uh, initiative, I feel. And I still think it can add tremendous value in changing people's attitude and behavior. Uh, Shakila, uh, you've, uh, your, your primary area of work is corporate and government policy and strategy. Uh, and and uh, can you tell us a little bit about what exactly you do and what are the different areas in which uh, you've had interventions and where, what have you been involved with? Okay, so being an organizational psychologist and working in, in the field of HR and in leadership roles, I've had the opportunity then to gain a lot of work experience uh, in this context. And so uh, when you know the opportunity came to start getting involved in strategy development and strategy leads to policy, then I, you know, I actually grasped that opportunity because it allowed me then to shape uh, to shape documentation that in turn would end up shaping people. And so the policies and strategies that I've been involved in started first in the company that I worked for, which was the National Railways in South Africa. And I started at a time when democracy was uh, had just come about. So I was right at the cutting edge of the new laws that was coming about. So even prior to the Employment Equity Act coming out, we already in that company were looking 
we're looking at the changes that needed to happen in terms of workforce representation, inclusion, those sort of things. But of course, disability was was not in focus at all at that point. It was all around the racial issue and, and later on gender. So I also started that way. My focus was on the, on the race issue, then the gender issue. And then my own disability made me realize that I needed to do uh, this equally because people were responding to me in a way that I needed to take cognizance of and start documenting this. And so I started the disability uh, forum in our company. At that time, there was over 100 and something thousand employees nationally. And I became aware of the discrimination towards disabled people then because it was a company that would disable people on a daily basis because of the high risk of certain occupations on the shunting yards and so forth. And the typical example would be then to, um, would be medically boarding. As long as you were healthy, well, so-called healthy, you could retain your job. The moment you acquired a condition, you were now considered a reject in the system. And so they would medically board you and remove you from your active job, even though you, your talents remained tact, intact, your expertise remained intact. So I, being in HR, I would see this firsthand and it started to horrify me when I would be interviewing these people to let them go. And then I realized, but my God, we could keep you and retain you. All we got to do is change the way you approach things and change the way the environment uh, is structured, not realizing that in time that's going to be called reasonable accommodation and in time that's going to become actually a law and a policy, which it did in time. And so I was very, very blessed and fortunate to have had that kind of exposure and to be able to use that exposure to start guiding the development of policy and strategy. And from there then, I got involved in many other government departments, different ministries, from education to health to sports in South Africa at different stages along the way. I had the opportunity to participate in the, in the shaping of those, uh, those very important documentation and then codes that the codes that came out were, were codes that spoke directly to the process you would follow. Like a, like a workflow process. Then the corporate sector kicked in. When I left that company, uh, I was uh, headhunted in a way by Pricewaterhouse. And so I became a consultant to them for several years, which then gave me exposure to the, their corporate clients. And this is when uh, I had, again, the opportunity to write policies, uh, strategies and policies for the banking sector, for the, even in academics, for most of the large universities. To support our work with the blind and visually impaired, you can visit the donate page on our website www.scorefoundation.org.in. Please note www.scorefoundation.org.in. So Shakila, uh, you were not born blind. You developed your eye condition um, uh, somewhere uh, in your early teens. Uh, tell us uh, how you lost your sight and uh, and what were the kind of changes that you had to bring in to move on in life. Okay, so thanks for asking that, George. So in I I had an injury earlier in my childhood, and it was a nasty fall. I was apparently very tomboyish and a scamp, and I had a go-kart 
and then I took it down a flight of steps and then I bumped my head and apparently that led to damage of the optic nerve. But it didn't surface till much later. And in my teenage years, it was when I started to lose my sight and then I underwent you know, a lot of uh, operations and nothing much helped. And eventually in my 20s, I became totally blind. Did it have any serious impact in the way, uh, uh, the, the kind of direction your life took? Absolutely, because when I lost, when I was losing my sight, when the injury happened, it was at the height of apartheid in South Africa. The first thing that that did, the, my eye condition did, was it, it it uprooted our family because my my parents were very concerned that I would not get equal treatment in this country. They sold up everything, the only home they knew, even though we are third generation. Uh, Indian. They sold up everything here and we moved to Ireland where my sister was studying medicine. And we started all over again in that country just so that I could get appropriate treatment. And my parents couldn't survive in that country, the weather and so forth. They came back. I stayed on then with my sister. So my whole life changed around me socially, in every way, environmentally and physically within myself. So I, I went to a different school there in Ireland. Uh, and then I had to go to school for the blind because as for a short while, because then I, I found it very hard to adjust because I still was, uh, I had partial sight then and I was still quite independent and I struggled to adapt to a school for the blind. Then I stayed at home for six years in Ireland and not wanting to go to school. Uh, and I forgot to tell you, but my mom actually came back to South Africa and died and I and passed away and I was just 12 at the time in Ireland when that happened. So I didn't see her again. Uh, the last I saw her was at the airport in Dublin. And my dad remarried because you know he was still a young man and it was an arranged marriage and all of that. So everything changed, our whole course of life for the family, myself. And in terms of me adjusting to the blindness, actually that part was the least difficult i think because i was a child i was a teenager it was as natural as growing up losing my sight if i woke up one day and found my sight was a little bit more blurred i would think it'll just it would clear in the day and then i'd realize it's not going to clear and i would just accept and move on and i think when you go in through those formative years you're far more accepting of what happens to you in life just as i was adapting to a different country adapting to not having parents around me and fending for myself basically and learning to, you know, to become independent very quickly. So yeah, those were the big changes that I went through. You know, uh, uh, from what you say, you grew up and were educated in different places. You did a little bit of studying in South Africa. You did some studying in Ireland. And later on, I think you went to the University of uh, Columbia at New York. Uh, as a blind person, uh, what was the kind of uh, ecosystem that you found yourself in in these different uh, different countries? So South Africa was my first university environment because uh, uh, here they were not equipped for persons with disabilities and then it was still the apartheid, it was in the 80s. Yeah. So you had segregated uh, universities. So I was at a university for Indians and... I found my fellow students very supportive. So I had to develop different kinds of schemes. So even technology was not advanced. I used a standard portable typewriter and I used a tape recorder. Yeah. And and you didn't even have uh, portable tape recorders, but not rechargeable yeah. batteries, right? So I used to actually carry a cable, a tape recorder and my portable 
typewriter and had to lecture. Yeah. But I also had to work on schemes in which I, how I would uh, arrange for fellow students, motivate them to assist me. So people were 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 kind and helpful, but to sustain their kindness and and I would have to do a given a give and take sharing sort of arrangement. So I would buy textbooks. I would allow uh, students to to use them free of charge and not have to buy their own textbooks. I would tutor them because I had the I I had access to my lectures uh, that were recorded, and so I had the benefit of listening to them several times. So I would know my content inside out as well as I'd have my books on audio. They'd be taped. So I used to find that I was always. And I was working so hard to, to do well that I was uh, like at an advantage. I knew my material quite well. So I used to offer few free tuition and free textbooks to the students. In return, I would have a schedule put up outside my room at res on my door, and students would book half an hour at a time to come and read to me. So I used to get a lot of books read that way. And when I started dating, then uh, who, I mean, that's Naresh, and I ended up marrying Naresh. So we used to spend our dates going out to pensioners, giving them cassettes yeah. and study material. So that's how, so those were the methods I used. In the USA, it was very different. When I arrived in the USA, they were, and at Columbia University, it was just the beginnings of establishing a disability unit. In yeah. fact, the year that I was there, they did that. And I had to share with them what my needs were, and they provided it. But it was similar in the sense that I also uh, I also approached the students to read to me. I approached the local churches around me where the university was, and they would arrange readers. And I managed. And then in in the US also, what was different was many of the 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 books that I needed at university was already available. And at that stage, I was doing my masters, so I could get a lot of material already available to me. And the lecturers were far more uh, accommodating. They already had, a me um, what was it, the system in place that they would give you additional 15 minutes on the hour to write exams. Uh, the, the building was very accessible. I was able to get around independently. They expected it. In South Africa, you get a uh, you get you get a lot of sighted assistance in South Africa when visually impaired persons become totally blind and need to be mobile. They either employ someone to take them around, uh, or they get a guide dog or a family member or something. But they can't do without uh, you know human aid. In America, if you do that, you're considered inadequate. Blind persons just do it on their own. They mobile with their with their canes and they move. And I learned very quickly to become that way. I realized Manhattan was one of the most accessible uh, environments to be in. The grid pattern helped me to understand exactly how to uh, locate myself wherever I was. Uh, also, buildings had you know very clearly defined staircases, ramps, curb, pavements, traffic lights. So I found uh, such a sense of freedom in moving around, I, got, I developed a lot of courage there to hop on and off buses, even making my way into the sub, subway stations. And at that stage, that that in itself became a huge learning and a sense of freedom for me. So it was, yeah, an amazing, amazing few years living in Manhattan. Lovely. So, uh, Shakira, so wonderful talking to you, and uh, thank you for giving the time. And uh, it's always a pleasure. Uh, meeting up with you and catching up. All the best. Thank you very much, George. It was a great opportunity. I enjoyed it.
This podcast was brought to you by Score Foundation.